There are few things scarier than a bad burn. For providers far from a burn center, what are the key things to know? That's the question for this episode of Country Hits, Rural Trauma from the Scene to the Emergency Department. I'm Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon, pediatric trauma medical director, and your host for this short podcast series. Our burn expert is Dr. Katie Romanowski. Katie is a burn surgeon and associate professor of surgery at the University of California, Davis, where she also serves as the program director of the Burn Surgery Fellowship. Here we go. So, Dr. Romanowski, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about burn care and particularly burn care in that, you know, first hour or two of uh, a burn patient's life where um, they're they're being picked up by EMS and getting to the emergency department. First off, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourselves. Obviously, you and I go way back, um, and it is such a delight to find this small world of surgery again, where um, where I think, you know, we first met as I, I was a TA for your anatomy class, and you've gone a long way since. Very happy to be doing this. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, so I did medical school at the University of Chicago and stayed on there as a general surgery resident. Spent two years in a basic science uh, research lab, actually the same one you did several years after you did, and thought I was going to really follow in your footsteps and be a pediatric surgeon, but eventually kind of found my calling in burn surgery and came out here to UC Davis for a fellowship and spent two years, one year of burns and burn surgery, and then another year of trauma and critical care. I then went and worked for two and a half years at the University of Iowa, and then was eventually recruited back here at the beginning of 2018. And so I've been here working at UC Davis and Shriners Hospital for Children as a burn surgeon. Means I have about six years of out of training burn experience, and then obviously more within training. Yeah. And burn surgery, as you and I have talked about, is really one of the like true general surgery, general surgeon things. I mean, you guys are doing obviously taking care of burns, but also, you know, you're doing amputations on your service and you're managing all sorts of medical issues in your patients. And that's just such an, a, a remarkable breadth of what a burn physician, specialized burn surgeon does. Uh, certainly, we, we really view ourselves as kind of taking care of the entire patient and the entire age range. So the youngest patient I'm taking care of right now is eight months old and the oldest is in their 70s. You succeeded in becoming a pediatric surgeon. I Indeed. did. You found your way there. Uh, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about case because um, I think this is probably something that most EMS and emergency department people have run into. You know, there's a house fire on a cold winter night. Someone may be heating their, trying to heat their house with their oven open. And EMS arrives uh, to find, you know, the firefighters have pulled a, an elderly man in his 70s out of the house and they don't know much about him, but they, they know he's maybe got a couple of chronic conditions, maybe some COPD, some diabetes. They just sort of hand him to you and say, this guy's got a burn, get him to the hospital. Where do we start? We need to start thinking about, and this is how I always put it with my trainees, is thinking about what are the functions of the skin, right? Because the functions of the skin are where we need to start thinking about things that can go wrong for this patient. And since you mentioned cold winter nights and having trained and lived in the Midwest, I understand what cold and winter are, unlike some people from California. One of your big things is going to be making sure this patient doesn't get cold. There's some interesting studies actually coming out of Australia that look at soaking patients in room temperature water for like a half hour 
But that's something that's like would be much better done at a burn center. And at this point, your goal is to, if they're on fire, obviously put the fire out. But once the fire is out, you're now your struggle is to keep them warm because thermoregulation is one of the skin's most important uh, features. And therefore, when the skin is burned and not functioning normally, patients can get very cold very quickly. So even if this guy is shouting like, oh, it burns, it burns, begging you to pour cold water on his skin, you got to avoid that temptation. You do, as long as, as long as he's not actively have burning clothing. Not on fire. As long as he's not on fire, you need to kind of resist that urge. And you need to resist the urge to put like moist or wet dressings on the patient. Because they can, as I said, they can get very cold very fast. Even though it seems like a good idea, warmth at that point is probably more important than comfort. It does bring me to other issues you need to immediately think about, though, which is obtaining some form of IV access. And one of the big misconceptions is that you can't put an IV through burnt tissue. Obviously, we prefer to not go through burnt tissue. Everyone is more comfortable if it doesn't go through burnt tissue. But if that's where you can find a spot, go ahead and put it in. IO access, so interosseous access, is okay for burn patients. It's not great especially because so much of their blood flow is kind of shunted different places than normal. But certainly if that's all you can get, go ahead. But obviously IVs can be placed and they can be placed through the burn if they need to be. And when you think about IV fluids for these patients, I think, you know, even when I was an EMT, we learned the Parkland resuscitation formula, Mm -hmm. um, which is basically massive resuscitation uh, in the setting of burns. Like, is that something that the EMS on scene should be thinking about implementing? Or is that something you really should wait and talk to a burn center about? I think that's something you probably should wait to either talk to a burn center about or at least get the patient away from the scene and someplace where you can stably figure out how much of them is burned. Because Parkland really depends on knowing a percent burn and a weight. The American Burn Association does have recommendations for initial fluid resuscitation if you think it's a quote-unquote big burn so anything pretty much over 20 percent but it's age-based and not weight or burn size based so for adults for example um, anyone over the age of 14 they say like two or like 500 mls an hour should be kind of your starting fluid rate if you don't know the burn size but you kind of know that it's a big a bigger burn and if you don't know their weight for kids that are younger so i think it's 5 to 14 um it's 250 mls an hour and then under that it's 100 mls an hour generally i would say kind of starting a generous but not huge amount of fluid while you're getting them someplace where you can really figure out how big they are and also what their burn size is let's talk about burn size because i think that comes up a lot as well how how you figure it the pitfalls in trying to calculate it i assume basically so this point we have our guy he's um he's awake he's alert he's in the back of a warm dry ambulance and we've got his clothes off if you're trying to figure out burn size in this kind of patient there there are kind of in the burn world we use something called a lund browder chart which breaks people down by age and body area it's probably a little too complex for a back of an ambulance so kind of what I'll call like the quick and easy methods are um, the rule of nines. Most body parts break down to some multiple of nine. So for example, your head is, entire head is nine, anterior torso is 18. So like chest is nine, abdomen is nine, back is 18. Again, kind of upper and lower back are each nine. Each arm is 9%. 
each leg is a total of 18, so front is nine, back is nine, and then the perineum is 1%. The other way to do this and is better specifically if you have burns that are splotchy, so scald burns in particular things where they involve liquid, is the palm rule. The patient's palm, and this is where people mess up sometimes, um, is, it, is that you're thinking about the patient's palm, not yours. And it's the entire palm, including the finger. So it's not just like that square part at the bottom of your hand it's including the fingers and that constitutes in actuality it's a little under percent but for ease of calculation purposes it's about one percent per palm and they said the patient's palm the other mistake people make is that there's two one is that they're counting first degree burn and first degree burn for a burn surgeon and a burn center does not go into their calculation of burn size so that's like skin that's kind of red and blanching red and blanching and not blistered and doesn't like kind of feel like it's gonna slough off when if you rub it so yeah so that doesn't we don't count that in burn size because it doesn't from a metabolic standpoint act like second or third degrees burn the other thing is that people often equate soot with burn it doesn't happen as often but sometimes you'll get someone say oh this person has a you know massive burn and it turns out that they're really just mostly covered in soot. And that's, again, it's hard to tell on a night in the back of an ambulance. And so, but that is something to kind of keep in mind is that first degree burn doesn't count. And obviously sometimes it's not really burn, it's just dirt. And the other thing I remember seeing sometimes is people would come in and they'd say, oh, this patient has a 30%, 36% burn because they have a burn on their head and a burn on their the front of their chest and a burn on their arm. But each was a small individual burn. So it's it's not like if you have a burn on your torso, that's automatically 18%. Right, exactly. And those are the situations where thinking about it as a palm really make it much easier than like the rule of nines, because you're like trying to divide the arm into nine pieces and figure out. So sometimes it's just easier when it's kind of more splotchy like that to use the patient's palm and say, okay, like they have about two palms worth of burn on their arm and about three on their chest and one on their face. So, you know, that's 6%. What about inhalation injuries? What should folks be looking at? there so inhalation's a, a tricky tricky beast in our world and um because obviously inhalation burn and inhalation injury is very scary and and thing, something that people are very concerned about and i think makes a lot of pre-hospital and non-burn center emergency physicians and even in our own burn center emergency room makes them very very nervous so when do you need to worry about an inhalation injury? If the patient is, in, like in our scenario, if they're in a house fire, you need to think about it. If they were out burning brush and they didn't fall face first into the fire, you probably don't need to worry about it. So if they're not in an enclosed space, it's much less likely that they have a true inhalation injury. So that's number one. Number two, you need to kind of, there are signs and symptoms of an inhalation injury. Some of the things that I think you need to act on pretty immediately are the symptoms. So brassy cough, shortness of breath, wheezing, extreme facial swelling already. These are things you need to be worried about and probably secure the airway early. So intubation, probably if, if, if someone's exhibiting symptoms of inhalation injury. The signs of inhalation injury are where it gets a little bit harder, you know, so singed nasal hairs, 
We get a lot of people intubated for singed nasal hairs, and they don't necessarily need to be. Facial burns. So it's kind of like what you're talking about with the termination burn size. You know, I have occasionally gotten people intubated who had a quarter size burn on the middle of their forehead and they said oh well they had a facial burn so i intubated him but that's nowhere near their airway and really not at risk of causing any airway loss not all facial burns are the same so kind of taking into account where the facial burn is how much of the face it is and really trying to think of head like as this patient starts to swell would i be able to intubate them and would this be a problem so I would say, so for more for the signs, like the singed nasal hair, um, small facial burns that aren't the full face, some, even some carbonaceous sputum, depending on how, if the patient, if that's all that they have, if they don't have coughing or other shortness of breath, those are things I think you can potentially wait to intubate the patient and get them to some place that's a little more stable and not the back of an ambulance. But the symptoms such as the brassy cough, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, uh, altered mental status should be acted on sooner. So we have our patient with his clothes off. He's got an IV in his left AC that's got some burn. It looks a little blistered, but we powered through it, have a good IV running. Looking at him, you know, he's got some facial burns. It looks like most of his chest has some significant burns. The fronts of his legs look like they've got some significant burns. So we, we'd call that probably a big burn in this older guy. And, and we start some generous fluids running, but he's able to talk to us. He's not coughing. He's seems to be maintaining his airway. I guess my next question would be, what do we do about thinking about transport for this patient? So, you know, if there's a community emergency room 20 minutes away, there's a bigger hospital that's not a burn center 45 minutes away, and there's a two-hour drive to a burn center, and there's a helicopter service that we could call. Like, how do we decide where to go and, and how to triage these patients? It's always a bit of a challenge. I would say if this patient is awake and alert and talking to you, that your best bet is to probably just get them to a hospital. As I said, what you're losing in is weight is temperature. You really have to worry about hypothermia. And so the longer you're kind of in, not indoors, the colder that the patient's getting. And usually these type of transports take at least a little bit of time to coordinate unless you have a very good helicopter system that's kind of very well organized and can get there quickly. But in general, even then, you would be better driving your 20-minute, you know, call the helicopter, get them en route. But in that meantime, get them to your local emergency department that's like 20 minutes away so that they can potentially establish better IV access. I'm not sure about what's carried in Wisconsin. I do know that in Iowa and here in California, most of our EMS services don't carry lactated ringers. Most of them have normal saline. And so getting to the hospital would allow you to potentially switch the patient over to some lactated ringers, which we generally prefer for the large volume resuscitation that this patient's going to need. It also allows you to kind of reassess their airway before kind of making the longer trip. So it gets them into an emergency room. Someone can more outside the back of an ambulance, inside a building. You can do some other things to look at their airway. There's been some interesting studies coming out lately about doing kind of awake fiber optic nasal uh, laryngoscopy to look for swelling of the cords to determine need for intubation. And that's something depending on what your local emergency room had, they could potentially 
potentially do. They could also just consider con- doing a direct laryngoscopy or at least also just give you some time to try and decide whether the airway needs to be managed now or not. So. What about medications? Like, obviously, burns are exceptionally painful. Like, is there a specific pain medication regimen that you would recommend? And then I think the other question that I've seen come up a lot is like, what about antibiotics? Should these patients be getting any sort of antibiosis? Yeah, those are those are two of the questions we get a lot from transferring hospitals and pain medication wise, generally you want something very, you want something pretty short acting and it should always be IV. So as I talked about earlier, the blood volumes in a burn patient have kind of all shifted and you have a lot of third spacing due to the um, inflammatory surge that happens with a burn. And then you also have a lot of blood flow going to the skin because it's trying to cool it and to, um, you know, bring inflammatory markers to that area that's now injured. In particular, the intestines aren't getting their normal blood flow. And so oral medications are generally not preferred. And, and again, for the same kind of reason, IM medications are not recommended in a burn patient. So we prefer the use of IV medications, something short acting. So in our burn center, especially for acute burns, we use a lot of fentanyl and our second choice would probably be Dilaudid or morphine. Both are fine options as long as given IV. We generally do not recommend starting systemic antibiotics or even topical antibiotics prior to arrival at a place of definitive treatment. And again, this kind of comes back to, and I'll probably sound like I'm harping on it about keep the patient warm, but that's a big factor in part of the reason why we don't recommend putting the patients in antibiotic ointments prior to transfer um, is again, it just, especially if you're talking Wisconsin, winter, cold night, and you're thinking that you're then going to helicopter them from your small local hospital to the burn center, you're then dealing with altitude, cold, winter, and then wet dressings on top of it. You can have a very, very cold patient when they arrive to you. So generally we defer IV or you know, um, systemic antibiotics, at least initially in burn patients. And then we also usually recommend just keeping them either in, you know, dry dressing or occasionally we have people wrap them in saran wrap if you have it available because that helps keep some of the moisture in and trap some of the heat in with the plastic. So it would be like dry gauze and then wrapped in plastic. Yeah. What about like space blankets or, you know, those are okay. wool blankets or whatever blankets you've got? As long as it's dry. Okay. The big thing is dry. Everything's going to end up wet (laughs) um, because most of the time they're leaking a fair amount of fluid from the burns, but everything should start out dry that goes on. Let's talk a little bit about transfer then. So you've got your patient to the emergency department. They've got some fentanyl. You've reassessed their airway. And uh, maybe now you also notice that they have what looks like a sort of circumferential burn of the hand and forearm and one side, which makes you concerned that they're could be some compartment um, or entrapment there. And, and you're, you're thinking, oh, I remember from, from medical school <laughs> um, or residency that like escherotomies are important for this sort of thing. So clearly this is turning into a big burn with some potential complications. At what point should you be calling the burn center, not just to arrange transport, but to sort of decide what needs to be done where you are versus what can be done when transport has been initiated? I would say, if, you know, for this patient, what you're describing, I would say basically as soon as you have kind of gotten them through the door and assess that they don't need emergent airway or some other emergency treatment. As soon as you determine that I don't need to stop what I'm doing to intubate them right away 
or that they're not hypotensive to a point where you're thinking of pressors, coding, etc. Pretty much as soon as they roll through the door, you should be calling your burn center. Burn centers across the country, we do this all the time. And I would say without fail, we are very, very happy to talk to you and have a conversation about ways in which we can help you and ways in which we can help the patients even with smaller burns that you don't think necessarily need to come to us, but um, especially with a burn like this, that we can try and help you stabilize this patient before we can get them transferred. So don't try to do burn surgery at the bedside without calling a, a burn surgeon. For the most part, the time that you spend making the phone call to the burn center is not deleterious in, for example, this, for example, like an escarotomy to the uh, circumferential arm burn. I think for most people who are not doing escherotomies on a daily basis, that phone call can be critical to A, determining if you should do it at your facility versus just getting the trans patient transferred as quickly as possible. And if you decide you are going to do it, having someone who's done them who can try and walk you through exactly what you need to do. I think that phone call can actually save you some time and some worry, which it seems like it's taking more time to do, but in actuality can either help hopefully help alleviate your concerns or if it confirms your concerns that person can often help you talk you through what you need to do that's super helpful i think like all of these things are just incredibly good points the other thing i'd like to talk about just because i remember them from my own burn rotation and you know some mistakes that i made as a resident you know are, are potential pitfalls around seemingly minor burns that can actually go on to cause big problems. The one that comes to mind for me is a kid who came in with a burn that didn't seem all that bad and we just sent him home. And then I heard later, you know, that it had crossed a joint and the kid actually would have benefited from more aggressive physical therapy intervention earlier on. And we had sort of poo-pooed it because it was small. The American Burn Association has referral guidelines out Having looked at them and having actually spent a lot of time recently looking at them, they kind of read as send everything to a burn center. And that to a certain you know, respect is true. Like, you know, anything certainly can be sent to a burn center. Things that I think we tend to think about when we worry about more. So any burn to kind of like a hand or a foot, any burn that crosses a joint is something that probably would benefit from a burn center seeing and, and evaluating or at least having a discussion with them about whether they should see or evaluate it. Obviously, any burn that's, you know, bigger than 10% certainly needs to come. Facial burns, any kind of the weird ones, so like electrical burns, chemical burns, would warrant a phone call to kind of discuss what the burn center would do and whether what kind of referral needs to be made. You know, so a lot of these things, you know, for example, we're coming up on campfire season, right? You and I are talking in April. I guess maybe it's a little further away for the Midwest, but for California, Northern California, we are very quickly approaching campfire season. Um, followed immediately by forest fire season. That is also true. <laughs> <laughs> and so... I get a lot of calls for kids falling and touching or hands going into campfires. And those are certainly children who need to come and see us. They aren't necessarily a child that needs to be, you know, flown 
two hours on a fixed wing from far north Wisconsin or, you know, um, upper peninsula Michigan to the burn center. Not not necessarily. Sometimes they are, but sometimes it's just someone that we need to make sure we see in the next couple of days. Because sometimes they will need surgery and they will need something done, but usually it's not going to happen at three in the morning. I really think in many ways that the referral by guidelines could be boiled down to call your burn center. And I, and I think we love to do this. Like I think part of why in particular physicians, but also nurses and a lot of the other people who go into burn is because they enjoy burn, but they also enjoy teaching people about how to care about burns. I would say some my biggest advice is develop a good working relationship with your burn center wherever you are so that you can determine kind of what their practice patterns are, how they want to handle certain types of burns and you know what they can teach you about things you can do to help care for the burns prior to either referring or immediately transferring them to them. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to educate us all. I learned something new every time I talk to you about anything really, but you know, particularly when we get into the, the topic of burns where you're such an expert and um, it's such a pleasure to connect with you and to uh, have had our paths converge again at another institution and uh, thank you again so much for taking the time oh, thank you for having me i really appreciate it country hits rural trauma from the scene to the emergency department is a production of Wisconsin's South Central Regional Trauma Advisory Council. Go Badgers! If you enjoyed this episode, there are seven more, so check those out too. And please, rate and review the show so others can find it. Most importantly, tell your friends. This podcast is produced by me, Jonathan Kohler, and Ben Ethan, with production assistance from Terry Hoover. It's mixed and edited by the great J.P. Swenson. Special thanks to Lori Silverberg and Nicole Jennings at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and to Shin Hiroshi, Diana Farmer, Joe Galante, and Nate Cooperman at the University of California, Davis. And an extra special thanks to Dan Williams and the members of the South Central RTAC for deciding they wanted this podcast and what they wanted it to be about. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. <laughs>